Imagine, there are powers out there. They filter what comes into your head. They've learned that by giving you more negative thoughts and inputs, stories, narratives, those things will bring you down. They can withhold from you. They can keep you from paying as much attention to, keep you from being aware as much of the things that are good and wonderful and noble and pure. Instead, bring negative things into your mind and into your head. And that that will leave you gloomy, negative, depressed, discouraged, even despairing. They tell you these things to direct your things, your thinking away to things that are pure and eternal. Instead, to give yourself to things that you hope will satisfy you in the midst of that discouragement or despair. They play up your insecurities and, f- and fears and desires in order to fill that hole in your heart, that seeming void in your life. These voices have an answer for that, for that need that they have, in a sense, heightened or even caused or led you into. It sounds like I'm describing spiritual forces of darkness, doesn't it? Well, I'm not. I'm describing Facebook. I'm not just making this up. I I wouldn't have thought of it, actually. But a few years ago, Facebook was criticized for research where they determined that they could adjust your news feed. About 700,000 people became human guinea pigs. And they adjusted your news feed without you ever knowing about it. You ever wonder why you were just feeling kind of down for a while there? What was going on with that too much, Facebook? They, they, they filtered out the upbeat stories and, the, and then the, and only kind of negative or down stuff came your way and they watched your, because they do read your feed as well, they, they read your postings and they found that your own postings either diminished, you just didn't participate as much, or the things that you did post and participate in were more negative or emotionally down, discouraging, sharing problems instead of rejoicing and and describing fun and happy things and puppies and unicorns. Likewise, if they blocked negative stuff, they blocked negative things from your feed, that that group that they were experimenting on, as they blocked those negative things, they found out that you then were more upbeat and positive. You posted more and the postings that you, more cat videos were shared. It was wonderful, right? Facebook was manipulating you and causing you to feel this way or that. Well, just last week, the New York Times, USA Today, among other sources, revealed that that Facebook has been studying the Facebooking trends of teens. And they know when you're happy, they know when you're sad. They know when you're up, they know when you're down. They know the best time of the week to approach you with this or with that. Which your parents knew that, right? And, and not, they, not, only, not only do they know that, but they shared that information with some of their advertisers. Now, they insist it was all innocent enough. They weren't trying to manipulate people just by being aware of and knowing their, their emotion. I'm sure that Facebook didn't end that pitch and that description of these things that they know about teens with their advertisers, I'm sure they never ended it with, and so that means the best time for you to advertise this or to try to push that on them would be here or there. They probably never did that because Facebook wouldn't manipulate you like that to their own advantage, would they? 
They can control your mood. They can steer you more negative or more positive. And then they can offer you something. They could sell you something. They can present to you comfort clicks, whereby you can meet the need that they themselves have emotionally created. Now, this is not meant to be a Facebook rant, but you can see how that works on the psychological level, right? What if? What if now? Because we understand things material and behavioral and psychological. What if the same thing happens in the spiritual realm? What if we have a spiritual enemy who would do the same kinds of things, intending to bring us down, to draw our eyes away from those things that we need to be focused on, those things that are good and noble and pure and right and holy and just, to get our eyes away from that, to get our eyes away from the person of Christ and on to troubles and problems, things that would bring us down, things that we might then pursue solutions. We might pursue other things that could make us feel better, creating a longing that our faith that they've drawn our attention away from no longer satisfies or fills, and so it's offered to be filled in all kinds of other ways that might be clear temptation. It might be more mild distraction just to keep us otherwise occupied. What if that were occurring? It's not really a what if, is it? Certainly that's occurring. We are told to, 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 if we have been raised with Christ, to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth, because the enemy will intentionally, purposefully try as best they can to set our attentions on things merely on the earth, in the material realm. And, and to the point that we would even, in our culture especially, get away from a focus of spiritual realities as well. So, uh, so uh, a focus on spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians like we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks seems kind of like, <laughs> well, that might, might be interesting somewhere. Maybe that works for India, but it's really not part of my life here because we live in a material world. I'm a material girl. Oh, did I? No, I, I didn't mean that. <laughs> we are much more than that. We are much more than that, you see. We do not live in merely a material world. And that denial of spiritual reality in terms of our Western concepts of materialism, rationalism, and logic, and things that we can discern with our five senses, that, that then is actually a denial of our salvation because our salvation is a very supernatural thing. Without the supernatural and the spiritual realm, we have no salvation in Christ. There is no resurrection from the dead. There is no being raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. There is no indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us power, who keeps us. None, all that's supernatural. None of that could be true. The very idea of, a, of God and a throne of judgment to whom we are accountable and and by whom we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and forgiven and made holy and blameless in his sight. All of that is supernatural. The intervention of God incarnate, God translated in the Son, translated into humanity, and, and who dies a very human and yet God-sized human death that is big enough for all of us and for all of our sin and guilt. That is a very supernatural thing. To deny, to downplay the supernatural realm is to play right into the enemy's playbook, denying the supernatural, denying our own salvation. 
in the midst, or at least minimizing it in terms of our thinking, putting our attention other places instead. The opposite extreme can also be true. We can spend so much time focused on supernatural things and, and, and so terrified of supernatural forces and spiritual forces of darkness that we are paralyzed. And, and our attention is on them so much that it is also drawn away from Christ and who we are in him. As Paul writes a letter to a church in Ephesus, and Ephesus is a place of, of um, great spiritual darkness, it is a place where there is this grand temple, the temple of Artemis, that not only was a place where some people who believe that worship, don't think of it in those terms, think of it as the controlling identity of the region. It wasn't just a, super, a, a spiritual control center, it was the economic and social center of the whole region. In fact, when the gospel came and people began to believe in Christ, one of the things they did, they all got together and burned their magic books. How many of you had magic books that you burned when you came to faith in Christ, not so many of us. That was a big deal there. Everybody had their magic books. And everybody would buy these expensive little silver shrines of the idol and the temple because they had spiritual power and benefit. When people begin to believe in Jesus, all of a sudden they stop buying these shrines. It upset the economic apple cart. You see, it was all spiritually connected. Spiritual economics was related together. And it caused a huge upset in Ephesus. Everybody goes to the stadium to figure out what they're going to do and how they need to get these Christians and run them out of town because of the impact that it was having. It was turning the, their world upside down spiritually. Ephesus was a spiritually dark place. It's the place where Paul writes, defying the church, the church of the living God, the one true and alive God in the midst of the dead, idle darkness. This was a big deal at Ephesus. And when Paul writes to this church, the acrid scent of idolatry and spiritual forces of wickedness are in the air. And he uses that language all through this letter. It's not just something he touches on finally at the end, tacks it on in chapter 6. The foundation for what he says, the foundation for what he's going to say in chapter 6 is actually laid in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What it is to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, how we do that, what that means is found in Ephesians chapter 1. Our identity in Christ and his power toward us, both of those are spelled out for us in chapter 1. It's no mistake that Paul starts the letter there because the church needs to know who they are and where and how and by what means they can stand against spiritual forces when we are merely mortal. If we live in a material world and yet we also wrestle not with flesh and blood but principalities and power, spiritual forces of wickedness in a heavenly, supernatural, spiritual realm, if that's true, and that's what God's word says. How can we, who are merely mortal, do that? We do that by knowing who we are and where the strength for us is. We need to know who we are. We need to not misplace our identity. Now, I worded that for, that, for, uh, for a very specific reason. We, we, we must not misplace our identity. When you misplace something, you can do one of two things with it. You can put your identity in the wrong thing. You can put your identity in your own achievements, Look what I've accomplished. In your own position, I'm the boss. In your own, in your own sense of self-rightness, 
because you judge others for sin you see around you. And because you judge those things, then you're obviously better yourself. We can put our identity in those kinds of things. That's a misplacing of an identity in the wrong thing. We can also misplace our identity simply by losing sight of it. I misplaced my cell phone. Not my new cell phone, not the cell phone I currently use, but you know how you, how you get a new cell phone and you hang on to that old one in case, in case this new one blows up, in case this new one falls into the sink or into the toilet? Does that ever happen to you? I hope not. Ew. Make your cell phone even dirtier than it already is. The, the, um, but it, I, I, I wanted to be able to share that, that old, older phone, my last phone, with somebody else whose phone was giving them trouble. I said, you could use mine. I have no idea where it is. It's gone. The closet ate it. Bob misplaced it. And Bob has this memory thing going on in his old age that there's lots of things that I don't remember. People come and talk to me about stuff going on in life. I said, no worries. You have, you have pastoral confidentiality here. And besides, I don't remember stuff. <laughs> it's just reality today. Wait. You who laugh, wait. It's coming upon you. We can misplace our identity either by putting it in the wrong place or by just forgetting what it is, forgetting where it really is. Don't misplace your identity. Our identity is spelled out very clearly for us. Our identity answers the question, who do you think you are? Because that's the question the enemy asks you. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to stand against me? Who do you think you are to, to, to Dare to pray to God. Do you think God cares about your little stuff? I mean, God is big and you are just you. Who do you think you are that God cares about you? Who do you think? Do you think God really loves you? Out of all the people in the world and all the people he could choose to love, you think he loves you? Come on, you know. You, I, come on. Who do you think you are? Those are the things the enemy whispers in our ear. Well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are or who you should think you are as a believer in Jesus Christ is laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I'm going to start. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. So follow along with me in Ephesians chapter 1. I forgot to jot down what page we are on. Page, I saw it there, 976. 976. If you're using the church Bible there or if you're using your own Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, those who are set apart, made holy by God, who happen to live in Ephesus or Brush Prairie, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Their faith is in Christ. They are full of faith in Christ. It's not that he's only writing to certain ones who are especially more faithful than the rest of us, and so they are saints. In fact, in Philippians, when he, when he, writes, when he writes about the saints, he says the saints and the deacons. I guess deacons aren't saints. I, I not sure what to make of that, huh? But they're not dead. They're alive. They're there. They're in the city, okay? It's you who believe in Jesus. That's what's being talked about here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You were chosen by God. And you were chosen by God that you would be holy and blameless. And then you say, oh boy, but you don't know this about me. You don't know that about me. Jesus knows all about all of that. And yet in him, you are holy and blameless. 
In love, God predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now this is not sons in the sense of sons or daughter. This is the sons in the sense of heirs who are active on behalf of the father as compared to a child who is immature and still growing up. Remember when the prodigal comes back? The prodigal comes home and his father runs down the road out to meet him. And he put, takes his robe and he puts it on his son. And he takes his ring, his signet ring. He would, he would sign or authenticate documents or orders. He takes that signet ring and he puts it on this prodigal son who has returned home. And this son who was his lost child has come back and he is making him a son, an heir who can now act on behalf of his father. He can act in his father's authority. He's living out a Roman ceremony. He's, 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 he's enacting on the spur of the moment a Roman ceremony called the toga virilis where it, it was called, it was a son placing where the father's robe is put on the son. So the son acts as the father. The son is covered by the father. And, and, and he acts in his father's authority, the signet ring. That's you and I. We are adopted as heirs. Think of it in those terms. We, are, we have been placed into the position of being heirs of God and joint heirs in Christ. That you have authority, not in yourself, but in Christ, you have authority to act in God's stead. To act for God as his agent, as his ambassador. Other language Paul uses. We have been made that. Adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our blessing, our reception before God is in Christ. It's because of him. It's located in him. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Not a little, not barely, but according to the abundance, the lavish excess of God's grace, which we do not deserve. That's the definition of it. More of that in chapter 2. But for right now, you are forgiven in Christ by his death for you. That's what we believe. That's what we know to be true. And Paul is reminding them of it here. This is who we are. We are forgiven ones, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God didn't just do this on the spur of the moment. This has been his plan to reconcile the world back to himself, making known to us the mystery of his will. I was just praying with somebody after the service. There's some stuff going on. And they need to know God's will in this matter and to, and to have the courage to stand in that will. And yet we are told to pray that we might understand his will in, all, in knowledge and all discernment. We should know God's will, and God's will is for your redemption. God intended to choose you, to save you, to stand you holy and blameless in his very presence. God intended, he intentionally worked that out because you are his treasure. We'll be speaking more about that as we go. So he lavished this upon us, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel. How do you know this is for you? 
How do I know that I stand here? How do I know that all these things, this inheritance, the riches of eternity that God has for me, that I don't need to scrabble and put together and, and work hard for whatever I can gather for myself here and find some security in life. God has got this. And he has me. And all of eternity is set before me, no matter what I do not have in this material world. How do I know that I have that? How do I know that I've obtained an inheritance? Verse 13 spells it out. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you believed in Jesus as the one who died for your sin, for your guilt, if that is true of you, all of this is true of you. And it is true of you that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee the down payment, the earnest money of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are already indwelt by the spirit of the living God, able to live and walk by his grace and his power. We nibble around the edges of the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. We already have victory over sin. We will have victory. We will have victory over this mortality. This mortality will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. We will have victory over all of that. We will be rescued and redeemed out of even the very even the presence of sin. It'll have no effect and claim on us in the future. That is our inheritance. We already live in the first taste of that, the down payment of it by an indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying here. And that's why I put in your notes, and I want us to take this, I want us to read this out loud together. Sometimes, I mentioned, read the book of Ephesians, and I suggest that you even read it out loud, because faith comes by hearing. Not merely by reading, and in your mind you can easily get distracted, can't you? And there's help getting you distracted. There is active help out there to distract you away from the truth of God's word. So, one of the things you can do is read out loud. There's more focus there. But read out, when you read it out loud, you also hear it for yourself. Faith comes by hearing. And you know what else I think? I don't think, I don't think spiritual forces of darkness read their Bibles enough. Okay? Now how can I get spiritual forces of darkness to take out a Bible and read it? I can't. So why not let's just read it to them. Okay? Oh my goodness. Imagine how you could frustrate the, den the enemy with just your devotional reading. You can take the next step into active spiritual warfare, firing, firing fusillades of, of artillery shells, boom, exploding across that spiritual realm because you are reading your Bible out loud. One of the things, we begin to see some things happening when we were in India just because out of our devotion times, we were, we were reading God's word out loud. We were praying out loud together. We were singing songs of worship. And from houses around us, man, stuff started coming at us. Things, things begin to happen. Just because we were verbal in our faith in Christ in a place where there was a great amount of active spiritual darkness. So let's read this out loud. This is Bob's summary of the verses we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, have you got it in front of you? Here we go. I, I, I don't want you to just listen to other people read out loud. If this is true of you, I want you to read it out loud. Here we go. I am a saint by faith in Jesus, chosen by God and made holy and blameless before God in Christ, adopted as a son and heir of God, forgiven through the redemption that is in Christ's death and resurrection, 
securely sealed in my internal inheritance by God's indwelling Holy Spirit. Do not misplace your identity. Know who you are in Christ. It matters. We need to know who we are when anybody would come along and whisper in our head anything else. This relates to overt spiritual attack. When you know, when you have a sense that forces of darkness are against you, when you know they are invading your thoughts or there there are night terrors going on in the middle of the night, what do we do? We don't say, I command you to leave. I command you to leave me alone. I don't have any authority except in Jesus Christ. Why do you pray in Jesus' name? So if, 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 if you've been troubled there, if, you're, if you've experienced where you come in into the house or a part of the house or, or, or you visit somebody else and you experience this sense of, a, of an evil presence, there's nobody there that you can see, but you experience that. And some of you have said, I've never experienced that. You think I'm weird here. You think I'm kind of going a little wild-eyed here. Too much time in India. No, I only went there once. But I grew up actually in a home that Many of you would probably consider haunted. I know, you thought I was much more rational than that. I'm not really. But there, there, there was that spiritual presence. And I felt it as a, as a young teen, as a child and as a young teen, I would feel this. And there were, there were sounds in our house. There were the opening and closing of cupboards and moving of things around. And, it was, and often centered around particular articles. Things that I had dug up out of a garbage dump that was at the back of our property in the woods. Interestingly enough, uh, in, in my home, uh, uh, there had been some involvement with consulting psychics. There had, been, uh, there had been involvement with Ouija board. And so that's inviting in, in spiritual darkness. That's, divide, that's inviting in demonic spirits into contact. And there was. One time my mom asked me, this is this was after, after she had returned to not merely her faith, but she returned to living in her faith uh, after my parents were divorced. And she, she, she asked me one day, and I'm, I'm a skeptical teen, you know. I, I, mom, moms don't know anything at that point in life. And, and she says to me, she said, you know that, that feeling that you would have sometimes? That, that, that uncomfortable, scary kind of sense that somebody was in the house that, that wanted to harm you? I said, yeah, because I, I had experienced that. She said, you haven't experienced it lately, have you? I thought about it. I said, well, no, I haven't. And she said, that's because I asked Jesus to take it away. And I was like, well, I was a teenager. What did I do? The eyes stayed front and center, you know, externally, but inside, they're rolling way back in my head. It's like, whatever, Mom. Because I went to church with her when she had returned to her faith because that made her happy, and we'd been through a tough time as a family. But I didn't really believe it yet. And uh, yet I experienced the reality of that warfare at that time. And, and what she was saying, in a very simplicity of faith, and in, a, in an evangelical and Lutheran background, was that she had no power over this darkness, but in Jesus' name she did. And she had asked Jesus to take them away. And you pray that way about other things in Jesus' name. In reality of spiritual darkness, meet this the same way. They would intimidate you and rant and rave. And you don't have to put up with any of that. Because our authority is in the name of Christ. So overt spiritual attack, temptations and distractions. What do you do? Same thing. Pray 
in the name of Christ. Rehearse who you are in Christ. Rehearse that I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And on his authority, because he has redeemed me, he has brought me back to himself. On this basis, I resist and I reject this temptation. And I command you in Christ's name to quit tempting me. How, respond. From where you are, don't feel like, do I have all the theological I's dotted and T's crossed? If you're holding on to Christ, confronting evil in his name on the basis of his redemption, you're on solid ground. We don't have to be afraid of this. Remember I said it was like germs. What do we do? We wash our hands. We're not afraid of them. We're not afraid of mosquitoes. What do we do? We wear deet. We respond well. We respond, we acknowledge that spiritual darkness is there and we stand in the light in Christ. And that is our security. That is our assurance. Whether it's, it's overt spiritual attack, whether it's applying to temptations and distractions, don't misplace your identity. Don't be bullied. You don't have to be bullied because of whose child you are. And that's what Paul wants us to know. That's why the chapter goes on from here. And because these things are true, because of our identity in Christ, he says, I want you to know this. I'm praying for you, Christian, especially that you would know this. He said, because of this reason, verse 15, this is where we stand. Stand in Christ's hope, assurance, and power. For this reason, because you have heard, rather, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. That's the basis. Your faith in Christ is the reason to go on here. The reason Paul prays this, he's praying this for Christians, those who believe in Jesus, which is shown in their love toward all the saints. That's how he knows they're genuine Christians. I do not cease then to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. How does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. You see how, the, how God the Father... The Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit are all involved. You find them intimately involved in our salvation in those earlier verses we read. You find again the triune God who, the Lord is my God. Whom will I fear? There might be spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against us and we are merely mortal and we would be terrified because of that. But we don't need to be. Even though we are merely mortal, the triune God, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all joined in unity for us against them. We need not fear. The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that there are three things you need to know. First of all, what is the hope of his calling? that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What can the enemy offer you? What temptation can he bring that is better than what God has provided, what God has already done? What vain glories do we chase? What neglect of what God has freely granted would we trade off for fool's gold that cannot last? You need to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is your assured confidence of what God has done and what he has for you? What is your eternal future? This confronts the enemy's lies that you must find your significance and worth in all the things that the world values. This will give you significance. This will make you important. This will cause people to look up to you. None of that need entice you if you know who you are in Christ. That's what matters more. Where do you look for significance? Facebook envy? How about instead, how about instead of seeing somebody else 
what they ate, where they went, what they did, what other people are saying about them and their posts? What if instead of that, more of our identity in Christ leaked out into Facebook? What if it was less cat videos and more joy and rejoicing in something about our God and our Savior? I'm not saying turn Facebook into your preaching pulpit, but I am saying in the midst of the stuff of light, of life, let your faith and your identity in Christ leak out there. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You know, when I was in high school, uh, high school, we, we search for identity, don't we? That's, a, that, 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 that's, that, that's that form where, where the time where the elastic becomes concrete and we're, we're figuring out and trying to find our identity. And in high school, I didn't fit in so well. You know, I, didn't, I, I wasn't in the right popular circles. I didn't, I didn't dress, you know, in the right ways with the nice clothes. And you say, well, Bob, you still don't. That's okay. To an extent, I don't care. Now, it doesn't mean I want to embarrass Christ, as I want to, I want to be an ambassador, and I want to be on a, mission, a missionary still on this planet, wherever I'm placed. And so I want to represent him well and try to cross into the culture and all the weirdness of Brush Prairie in Vancouver in terms of representing Christ there. So I don't want to purposely dress weird. I'm just, you know, not very good at it. That's my excuse. But that doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ that I stand in an identity in him that is far greater than any of that. And when that leaks out of you, the people who are thirsty for it, the other things don't matter nearly as much. Know what is the hope to which he has called you. Know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Can I just say it this way? There's debate. Is he talking about the inheritance that God has for you? No, he just talked about that. He's talking about God's inheritance, which is made up in his saints. You disagree with me? We can argue Greek later. For now, let me tell you this. God treasures you. You are God's future. When God is thinking about the future, and you ever imagine God doing that? When God thinks about the future and what it's going to be like, you are in his thoughts. What does that look like? A child gets a puppy. And the child loves that puppy. Now, to grown-ups, the puppy is just trouble. We know it's going to chew on stuff. It's going to pee on stuff. It's just going to be a mess. It's going to dig holes in the yard. There's nothing good about this puppy, really. But the child treasures the puppy with all of its problems, with all of the nuisance it's going to be. God treasures you even more. Some of you have children. Some of you know better. Those of you that have had children, those of you that have had children, what were you thinking they, 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 they cry and, 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 and fuss and keep you up all night. And then you start buying them stuff, all kinds of cute stuff. Let's see, there's some brand new parents in here somewhere I could pick on. Come on, come on, make yourself known. Come on, I'll find you. Where are you hiding? Okay, okay, Matt and Risa. Matt and Risa, there you are. Look at the clothes Matt and Risa are wearing. For the next seven years, they're going to be wearing the same stuff because all their money is going to be going into all these clothes that they're going to buy for the kids that the kids are just going to outgrow as fast as they can and they got to buy more. And it isn't cheap. Kids are such a nuisance, such a hassle, such a problem, and the parents are cringing right now. What are you telling me about my child? Children, don't listen. And yet we love our children, don't we? 
We love them. We treasure them. As you treasure your child, your grandchild, God treasures you even more. You are his glorious inheritance. When you remember that, when you put that front and center in your mind, other things fade out of the way in comparison. Other things don't pull you away, don't distract you, don't need to discourage you or cause you to despair. Remember in the midst of whatever, who do I think I am? I think I am God's treasured inheritance. All right. Not only that, he hasn't merely left me to claim me someday, one day. God has given an immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What does that look like? Verse 19 and 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God works a resurrection power in us. He has not left us merely as open but as orphans, but his spirit is within us to empower us to live, to walk with him and for him. You are his treasure, and he has invested his resurrection, his power that raised Christ from the dead in you and I. Far above, look at verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are the same terms he's going to use against those spiritual forces of darkness in Ephesians chapter 6. In Christ, he has raised you up above all of that and gives you, an, gives you a power in the risen Savior, indwelling you, the Spirit of the living God that is above all of that. That's why John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It doesn't mean that, that, that forces of darkness will not harass you. They will. That's why Paul's writing this. But when they do, know this, that God's power in you and toward you is far greater. Who do you think you are? That's who I think I am. I think I am one who has been given an eternal hope that the enemy cannot touch nor take away. Nothing he would offer can compare with that. That's why Jesus doesn't give, to his, give in to his temptations. Because he knows that he, by the Father's will, is going to redeem us to himself. And he is going to be, and as he humbles himself, he is going to be exalted and lifted up above every name that is named. He knows this, and there's nothing Satan can offer him. There's nothing that he can offer you and I. We have a hope that he has called us to. We are his glorious inheritance. You are God's treasure. Keep that front and center of your mind. When the enemy would whisper, who do you think you are? I'll tell you who I am. In Jesus Christ, I am God's treasured possession, and he loves me dearly. That's who I think I am. And I think I am one that God has empowered with his resurrection in Christ's power, and you can never ruin me. Be gone. Get thee behind me, Satan. When you hear those voices in your head, pray this way. Pray in light of who you are. Pray in light of what God has done for you. Pray in light of where you stand in Christ. And in Christ's name, answer the enemy and his lies and his vain, empty temptations. As we come to this table, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of what is true. We tell ourselves the gospel in this table. We tell ourselves that we have a God who loved us and gave himself for us. That we remind ourselves that we have individually received his body given for us, his blood shed for us, that we have received it individually. As those who are serving come forward, I invite you to prepare your hearts. We're going to distribute the bread first and then the cup. We're going to partake of it together, but I want you to do that today, reminding 
yourself, who do you think you are? And who I want you to know you are is in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, then this is your table. You have every right to come here because you come in Christ. You proclaim yourself one who shares in his death and also in his life. And if that's true of you, then I invite you to to share with us this bread and to take with us this cup.